just a couple of moments, I'm going to read you from some verses in Psalm 8. But before I do that, when we worship, we're here to engage our whole lives with God and know that he engages all that he is with who we are. So just think about your life this past week for a moment with me, if you would. Did you have anything happen this past week where you just thought to yourself, I can't believe this is happening right now. I don't want this to happen. Happened to you at all? Just wondering. For me, it was an unexpected flat tire that messed up my schedule one day. Maybe if you slow down and think about your life, was there anything this past week that you thought, you know, as I look back, I saw some growth this week. Like I was in this particular circumstance in which normally I would immediately run to anxiety or fear or anger, but I was able to slow down and respond in love. Anything like that happened for you this past week? See, what we're learning every week, we get these little reminders, these little snippets that our life is really not about us. And when we gather for worship, we are being reminded again and again that our lives are in his hands and that God is doing something through everything in our lives each week. Listen to this from Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moons and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If you would, let's respond together by singing. You can open up your bulletins because that's where the lyrics are. And let's, let's praise God together. Please stand. If- I'd love to look with you this morning in Genesis chapter 50. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, turn there. The words I'm going to read are also in the bulletin. I'm going to read verses 15 through 21 of this book in this chapter. It may be familiar to you, maybe not. Um, if it isn't, just hang in there because we're going to go back and try to make sense of this whole thing. So what I'm going to read to you is the Word of God. Another way to think about that is what I'm going to read to you is a portion of a letter from home. So hear this. This is God speaking directly to us, right to our hearts. Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did, that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. All right, John Paul just said that we're thinking about a four-part story together, right? Were you listening when he said that? Does that sound familiar for those of you that have been here? Four-part story? No, Mike says no. Wow. Getting some no. I know he's kidding. He's trying to throw me off. It doesn't take much. So what are the four parts? What are the four parts of the story? What's part one? 
Creation, what's part two? Rebellion, what's part three? Redemption, redemption. And what's the fourth one? Restoration, that's right. You get those four, you're going to understand the Bible and you'll understand the grid through which we're looking at all this this year. Can we pray and then dive into this? Y'all feeling okay? Feeling awake? Is the coffee working yet? Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are good and kind and you are with us now. Holy Spirit, you are ministering Christ to us through calling us to worship, through our singing, through our confessing, through hearing that we are forgiven, through acknowledging how much we need this Jesus. So we pray, Father, that you would again and again lavish us with your love and teach us more about who we really are. Teach us about who you really are. For your glory we pray, amen. Here's the point of this story that I'm gonna look at today. Here's the whole point. So if you get this, you'll understand Genesis 50. Genesis 50 is showing us how we can live into the four-part story. Got it? So that's what I'm going to try to talk with you today about. That's what we're going to talk about together. How to live into this four-part story. You remember the four-part story? Okay, good. So how do we live into that? That's what we're going to talk about. So you might notice as we started verse 15 that not only did we jump into the middle of this chapter, but we actually jumped into the end of the story of this guy named Joseph and his family and his brothers, and it seems like a lot of stuff's going on. So I want to give you background to Genesis 50. You ready? And again, this is meant to connect with our lives, okay? So try to get yourself into this story. If you want to understand the story of Joseph, we got to go all the way back to Genesis 37, It's there that we find out that Joseph was the son of Jacob, and Joseph had all kinds of brothers, a lot of brothers, more than 10 brothers. And here's the thing about Joseph that you need to know. He was the favorite. Did you grow up in a home in which you were the favorite? Have you ever known anyone who grew up in a home where they were the favorite, where all the other brothers and sisters weren't liked as much, they weren't treated in the same way? Joseph was the favorite. His dad loved him more than any other brother. And let me tell you, Joseph loved that. And if you read Genesis 37, around verse 4, it says that Joseph's brothers actually were jealous of him. They ended up despising him. Doesn't that make sense? Here they were growing up in this home, and for some reason their dad loved him more than them. And so one day they thought to themselves, you know what? I'm tired of all this. Collectively, the brothers thought, we're tired of all this. Let's get rid of this guy. He's our dad's favorite. We're, we're more, obviously more, more numerous than he is, and we, we can overpower him. We're going to put him in a hole. So they basically put him in a well. And they put him there because they wanted him to die. They didn't want to have to deal with him anymore. If you think you had a messed up family, and perhaps you really did, just know the Bible's full of messed up families and messed up stories and messed up lives, okay? So here's Joseph in the well, and if you look at chapter 37 of Genesis, you'll find out around verse 25 that they put him in the well, and then God says, and the brothers sat down to eat. And you might think to yourself like I did, why in the world would God say that? Well, I think he was communicating this. 
the brothers despised Joseph so much and they were at such peace with putting him in a hole and hoping that he would die that they could sit down and eat a meal while Joseph is in a pit probably yelling out, hey, help, somebody. And they were, just, they were so much at peace that they could actually sit at a table and eat while they're hearing their brother crying out. That's pretty twisted, isn't it? So Joseph was, was the favorite. The brothers were jealous of it. They put him in a hole. They started eating, and some people came by, and some of the brothers got the idea, you know what? It's going to take Joseph a long time to die. So how about we sell him? And if we sell him, then we can make money. And if we make money, then we can do other things that we want to do. So they sell Joseph. They sell their brother. Now, you've been sold out before, right? All of us have been sold out at one time or another. Maybe you've been sold out for money because someone could use you to make money. I don't know, but all of us have experienced this. So they sell Joseph, and then the brothers think, well, what are we going to tell dad? I mean, dad loves Joseph. Okay, Joseph, we need that coat that dad gave you that proved that he thought you were better than all of us. And they took Joseph's coat, and they actually killed a goat, and they just saturated his coat with goat blood, and they went back to Joseph's dad, their dad, Jacob, and said, Dad, sorry, Joseph's dead. Which, oh, by the way, is kind of funny to think about. He was attacked by a killer goat. You know, They're like showing him blood saying, look, your son's dead. He's not coming back. And the way they even say that is even unique. They're like, is this your son's coat? They know that it is, right? They're driving all the more this big separation between who they are and who Joseph is. So they sell Joseph. He ends up in Egypt, and while he's in Egypt, he gets sideways with, uh, with his boss's wife, and he ends up in prison. Falsely accused, ends up in prison. Didn't do anything wrong, ends up in prison. And while he's there, he meets people that he would not meet in any other place. You ever thought about that? My assumption is that you're hearing someone ends up in prison, and you're thinking, wow, that's a place where bad people are. That's a place where, you know, you're not going to meet anyone that's really going to be helpful to you in any way. Well, how about this one? Joseph ends up in prison, and he meets people that he would never meet in any other way, and they help him form connections so that not only does he get out of prison, but he gets a job, and not only does he do well in his job, but he actually gets promoted. And the reason he gets promoted is because he is able, he is given the gift of discernment and he is given the gift of insight so he actually can help people understand their dreams and think about their dreams from the standpoint of what God says and what God's doing. So he actually gets promoted so that he is second in command and he's in charge over the whole land. And because of his insight, he is able to determine that a famine is coming and people are not going to have enough food. And because he can see that, he is, he is put in charge to acquire the food that this nation needs, this Egyptian country needs, and he's, he's tasked with organizing it and organizing all the food so that they'll have enough when the famine comes. So here he is, second in command in Egypt. He has acquired all this food and organized it, and a famine is going on in the land, and it goes on and on and on. And then that basically is what happens with why we started here. 
The famine has been going on so long that verse 15 tells you that, that Jacob's, excuse me, Joseph's dad dies. Jacob dies. And you see what happens? Look at the first few verses. Look at 15 and 16 and 17 and 18. <laughs> Joseph's brothers know, okay, now we've heard Joseph say that he's cool with us, but now that dad is gone, maybe Joseph will enact revenge. And so look at what they say. Look at those verses, 15 through 18. This is what the brothers say. They basically come to Joseph and they say, hey, Joseph, we need to tell you dad's dying wish. Here are the last words that dad said, Joseph. He said, please, please, Joseph, don't do any harm to your brothers. Do you think they had an ulterior motive for why they were wanting to give this to Joseph? Would you? I probably would. I'd want to make sure that because he's in the position he's in, that I'm, you know, I'm going to keep my head. And they say, Joseph, here's what dad said. This is his dying wish. Don't do any harm to us. And oh, by the way, to add on top of that, they say, Joseph, we are your servants. We will do whatever you want. Real humility, right? Maybe. I don't really know. And whatever's going on, they're playing the game. Because they're nervous about what might happen. And then Joseph responds to them in verse 19 and 20 and 21. So let's go back to our point. How can we live into this four-part story, right? So I've given you the background of these verses I read. So now let's get in that question. How can we live into this four-part story? This text in Joseph's response, 19 through 21, gives us three clues. And these three clues indicate that we are living into this four-part story. You following me? You got me? How can we live in this three-part story? These verses give us three clues, and these clues indicate someone that's living in this four-part story. Got me? Clue number one. Look at verse 19. Here's what Joseph says. They come to him and say, Joseph, dad said this. It's his dying wish. Don't do anything to harm us. And oh, by the way, we'll do whatever you want. And Joseph says, look, Look at the end of verse 19. Am I in the place of God? We're going to summarize that this way. The first clue that you're living into this four-part story is God is God. That's where we're starting. It's exactly what Joseph says. He's got all the power that you could possibly want. And he has the position to do anything that he wants he can, he can enact revenge if he wants to. He can do anything that he wants to. Do you understand the significance of this? And he says to his brothers, whether they were coming to him with pure motives or not, doesn't really matter. He has all the authority. And he was the one that was mistreated. And now his dad isn't even around to where he has to think in the back of his head, well, if I do this to them, dad's still alive. He'll know, he'll be upset with me. He doesn't even have to think about that. And his response is, God is God. Who am I? Who am I? I'm not God. You see, what's going on in Joseph's heart and what has happened in his heart is this. He's living into the four-part story. 
You see, there was a time in the beginning in which God created mankind. In the day that God created male and female, it meant that there was a creator and there is a and there became a creature. God and us, humankind. And on that day, there's this distinction that we cannot cross. That is that God is God, and we have to come to grips with the fact that we are not. And what Joseph is saying here is that, look, I am not only not God, I can't even try to be him. He's God, and I am not. I am a human being. And oh, by the way, what we learned when we looked at Genesis 3 is that the heart of sin is every time we're trying to be God. So you see, Joseph is even resisting that temptation, knowing that he has all authority and power to do what he wants. And yet he says, no, no, God is God. I am not. He's living into that story. He's acknowledging that he was created by God and that he is not God, that God has all this power and even the power that he has is delegated and he is to be a steward of that. It's not for him to utilize for his own purposes and to enact revenge. That's clue number one. Here's clue number two. Everything is a building block. Everything. This is the way that Joseph is looking at our lives. This is the way that we can look at our lives as we live into this four-part story. Look at what Joseph says immediately after, am I in the place of God? Look at verse 20. He says to them, you meant this for evil. Did you, did you remember that? But God meant this for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph is living as if everything is a building block. And let me tell you how that connects with our lives. Because we all are tempted all the time to live super shallow lives. Let me tell you what I mean. It oftentimes is easier for us to live our lives, not thinking everything's a building block, but to look at everything in life. That means look at your life right now, and you either think about things in terms of success or failure in terms of rejection or acceptance. This is why oftentimes in our work, when something doesn't go the way it does, we begin to see people as obstructions to what we want to do. Because we're living from the mindset of, you know what? This is either a success or it's a failure. This is either, this is either an acceptance thing or people reject me and that's it. And that is so shallow, isn't it? And maybe that doesn't connect with you as much as maybe this will. Here's another way that we live shallow lives. We kind of take this idea of karma and like live from that philosophy, if you will, every day. That our life is basically boiled down to, you know what, I'm going to be a good person and I'm going to be nice and I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do because if I do the right things and I'm a nice person, a good person, then God will bless me. That's how we Christianize that. And maybe you've been taught that in the church. And it's basically the same idea. You do good, people do good to you. You do bad, people do bad to you. So that when you're living your life and bad things are happening, you begin to think to yourself, oh, I must not be doing something right. So I need to start doing more good. Because if I can do enough good, then these bad things won't happen. Or maybe on the other side of that, someone has taught you to live your life just like, you just need to assume that everyone is against you. 
So whether it's work, home, friends, family, whatever it is, your immediate response, my immediate response to stuff is just to be jaded and assume everyone is against me and I have to fight my way out of this and I have to prove myself and I have to do everything I can because no one really, really cares about me. And I'm saying if you think that way, if I live that way, which many times I do, it is incredibly shallow. Because the times that we live our lives thinking if I do good things and good things will happen, it only takes one thing that you don't see coming that's quote-unquote bad that wrecks that whole system. And what God is telling us here and what Jesus, excuse me, Joseph is illustrating for us is that everything is a building block. Do you know how freeing that can be? Joseph can look at his life. He can even be in the presence of his brothers and he can say to them, you meant this for evil. Do you know how freeing that is? You know how freeing it is to say there's evil at work in the world and people have done awful things to me? You know how freeing it is to say I am also guilty of the same thing? Joseph can look at the situation and look at the whole story of his life and he can say, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. He can actually say that there are things that are really wrong in his life and really wrong in the world. He doesn't have to think about, well, you rejected me, so now I'm going to crush you. Well, look at my life. It's been a complete success in spite of how you tried to throw me off, brothers. But now it's time to pay you back. You see, when everything is a building block, it doesn't just mean that we can be honest with our lives and honest about our motives and our circumstances and what we have done and what others have done to us. Living as if everything is a building block also means that God is always at work. Always at work. He's always working. Back when Joseph first told his brothers, because he couldn't hold it in anymore, that he was their brother, because they didn't recognize him. You can go back and read about that in Genesis 45. Joseph is overcome with emotion. He's overcome with the reality that he loves his brothers. And what he does is he says to them, look, God did all of this so that you would have food, so that people would have food, so that people wouldn't die. This whole thing, brothers, is not about me. This whole thing that you did and acting in an evil way against me, look, God is so powerful that he worked it all for good. And what that means in your life and in my life is that if we live thinking that everything is a building block, what that means is that when people sin against us, that doesn't define who they ultimately are. It means when we sin against other people, that sin doesn't ultimately define who we are. It means that Joseph didn't have to think because he took in his father's favor and he realized that, that he had to think to himself, well, now I've got to make up for that because, man, he loved me way more than my brothers for a long period of time, and now I'm obligated to prove that that's not who I am anymore. He didn't have to live that way. It means that God defined who he is. It meant that God defined Joseph's life. It meant that God got the final word on every circumstance and every situation in every conceivable way. 
It meant that God was working and that ultimately God defined him. He didn't have to try to define himself or make up for anything that he did or enact revenge because others mistreated him. Beloved, we can live as if everything's a building block. Knowing that God can work the most sinister things for good. Some of you have read um, Tim Keller's books or listened to some of his sermons and been greatly blessed by him, like I have. Uh, Some of you here might not know that name Tim Keller at all, and that's completely fine. I want to tell you a story. It's actually, I'm not telling it to you. I am going to repeat his story and how he talks about the formulation of the church where he served. He served a church in, in New York City until just almost two years ago when he retired. But I want to tell you this story because I think it encaptures and illustrates everything that we're talking about here. This is what he says. The church where he pastored was named Redeemer. So this is the story. Why was Redeemer planted? He's asking his congregation. He says, because some, time, some years ago I entered a Presbyterian denomination that put all kinds of emphasis on new church development and church planning. Why did I go into that Presbyterian denomination? Because my last semester in seminary, I sat under a teacher who had a big impact on me and made me desire to adopt the theology and tradition of Presbyterianism. Why did I sit under that teacher? Because he arrived at the end of my time in seminary, because he was British and he had problems with his visa. But one seminary student of mine had some clout, and he was able to get him here before I graduated. That's what Tim's saying. And that's why I sat under him, and that's the reason I became Presbyterian. That's the reason why I entered the denomination. That's the reason why we planted this church, meaning Redeemer. Why did that seminary student have the power to get the professor here? Well, his name was Mike Ford. He was the son of Gerald Ford, who at that time was president of the United States. Why was his father president of the United States? Because a bunch of burglars broke into Watergate, but they were caught. Why were they caught? Because one of the burglars happened to leave the door unlatched to the office. They just bugged. That one night watchman just happened to be walking by. Then he says, Watergate happened for you. If that guy had latched the door, we wouldn't be here tonight. If that guy had latched the door, none of us, none of what has happened to Redeemer in the last 14 years would have happened. Now, what does this mean? because he's trying to get them to think more deeply, right? It's incredibly self-centered for you and me to think, oh, so that's why all that happened. In other words, as glorious as it is to trace God's goodness and providence, it'd be incredibly arrogant to think that we are the only reason why God did this, right? And then he goes on to say, don't insult the intelligence of God. This might be one of about a billion reasons why God did this. Joseph could sit there and say to his brothers, look, guys, God did all this to preserve life and a host of other things, not just so that I wouldn't enact revenge because God was doing something way more. Here's a third clue. Be merciful. Look at what Joseph says. He says to them, not only that I'm not in the place of God, not only does he say, 
everything's a building block, basically meaning that you meant this for evil, but God can turn it into good. And then he says, I'm going to provide for you and your little ones. And he spoke kindly to them and comforted them. You see, what had happened in Joseph's life and what happens in our lives is that these tectonic shifts happened. What I mean by that is this. When God comes into our lives, we start realizing that God doesn't exist for me. I exist for God. You ever thought about that? Because it's easy to live our life as if God exists for me. But the truth is, we exist for God. And the other thing that shifts is that we begin to realize in new ways that I'm not the main character in my story. God is. Joseph was not the main character in his story. God was. And that meant that Joseph could genuinely be merciful to his brothers. That meant that he genuinely could forgive them. And what that means when we forgive is this. When we forgive someone, it doesn't mean that all of our anger or frustration is completely gone and therefore we can forgive. If you ever want to forgive someone, like truly forgive, what that means is that you are not going to treat that, you are not going to be, see how do I want to say this? The fact that this person sinned against you is not the controlling reality of your relationship. The fact that you have sinned against someone else is not the controlling reality of that relationship. It means that we are going to try to treat others the way God has treated and is treating us. He does not hold our sin against us, nor does he define our relationship based on that reality of our sin. Rather, he relates to us because of what he has done for us in Christ. Make sense? So if you're thinking this morning that here's, here's the takeaway, I, I got to go, go do these three things. I got to leave here and remember that, you know, God is God. Uh, I got to look at everything in my life and realize it's a building block and I need to be merciful. I want you to understand that you have to connect those things to Christ. Before they can ever be a reality in your life and before they can ever be the thing by which you're trying to think about your life, you have to connect all of this to Jesus. Jesus didn't have to try to be God because he was God. And he was fully man. So that he knew us from the inside out. So that he represented God to us. So that we don't have to try to be God. We actually, because of him, can be satisfied with being human. All of our sin nailed Christ to the cross, took him right to the tree. And the reason that happened is because our rejection was how God determined to redeem. In the same way that Joseph's brothers rejected him and that rejection was the way by which they were preserved, right? Our rejection of Christ is the very means that God used to redeem us while we were sinning, John Paul said. 
Christ died for us. In our rebellion, Jesus has only responded to our rebellion and our sin with mercy and grace. And beloved, if you connect your whole life to Christ and you see that he's done all this for you, then you will be able, then you will have the power to let God be God and see everything as a building block and be merciful toward others. Once you realize Christ has done that for you, he'll give you the power to do that with others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving us yourself. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are working to teach us the word and to cause the good news of the gospel to go deeper into us. So we pray that you would bring us to a greater sense of where we're trying to be God and where we're trying to just look at the scoreboard all the time of wins and losses, where we're withholding mercy, where we should give it. And we pray that you would help us to see how richly, graciously, you are working in us for your glory. Amen. Just know if you're here this morning, and actually it's afternoon now, if you'd like to know more about what does it mean to give your life to Christ or be found in him or to abandon trying to be God and realize that he's God and that he's actually been working in your life and you're ready to admit that or acknowledge that, I'd love to talk with you. You can email me. You can see me afterwards. John Paul and I will be up around the front here. There are deacons and elders in the back. Please feel free to talk to us. Email us. We'd love to share with you what God is doing in our lives and what we're learning. Um, but don't leave here without knowing that, that God's blessing is real, that he is at work, and that everything in, that will happen in your life is a building block. He's working everything for good. Receive this. The Lord your God is going to bless you, and he is also going to keep you. This week his smile is upon you, and he is going to be gracious to you. And in the age to come forever and ever and now, he is with you. And one day, he will make everything right. He will make everything whole. It's true because our Christ is alive. Amen.